This is Smarter Cars, and I'm your host, Michelle Kairouz. Welcome to season six of the podcast. Today we're talking with Shabazz Stewart, the founder and CEO of Uni, a company that makes secure parking structures for bikes and scooters. We discuss how Uni pods and kiosks can serve both owned and shared micromobility, and the larger question of the micromobility infrastructure we need in cities. Shabazz, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Can you start by telling us what your company, Uni, does? What's the main problem that you seek to solve? So our company was born out of a fundamental need to see cities invest in micromobility infrastructure. I think the need is apparent on a multitude of fronts, perhaps no more so than the lack of secure bike parking. Secure bike parking is the OG of micromobility challenges. People have been getting their bikes stolen for years. There have been a plethora of academic studies that have tried to quantify the problem. McGill did one in 2015, found that one out of every two cyclists in Montreal had experienced at least the theft of one bike. Transalt released a seminal report earlier this year, found that one out of every four New York City households, so that's, that's 2 million people, have experienced the theft of one bike. So in many ways, this is the greatest yet most ignored transportation issue that's out there. And when we, we talk about the new era, a golden age of micromobility, where we're getting to 25 and 35% mode share in cities like New York and San Francisco, we're seeing a compounding of that problem. We're seeing the lack of micromobility infrastructure start to chip away at the viability of scooter share. Where are we charging these things? Where are we organizing these things, right? Bike share. We're seeing the same kinds of challenges originate and really hamper rollout. So for example, when you look at Los Angeles, you know, we've got 10,000, 15,000 dockless scooters sort of running around the city, users struggling to really think through, hey, now that I'm done with this asset, where am I going to put this on the street, right? You have the company saying, well, our business model is tenuous at best. Where are we going to find the capital to invest in infrastructure? And you have cities saying, hey, you know, it's not really our role to invest in infrastructure in the public right away for private companies to come and operate these dockless vehicles. But the reality is that we found a way to do so for other transportation modes. So here in New York, we have 3,500 bus shelters. We have 400 newsstands. We have 1,700 Lincoln YC Wi-Fi kiosks. We have 800 city bike share stations, right? So we really need to think about micromobility infrastructure on that kind of scale and optimize private capital and the public aptitude towards creating new infrastructure programs to building lots of infrastructure at scale very quickly. And that is really a 21st century challenge. And so tell us how Uni is solving that problem for us. So when we started operating in New York, and my background is really in the public sector. I used to work at a business improvement district. I was the deputy director of the downtown Brooklyn partnership. There was no model for building secure bike parking in New York City on the streetscape. And so as a result, we saw basically no provision for this kind of infrastructure. And so we started talking to activists, we started talking to government, we started talking to private property owners. And our questions were very simple. How do we 
build this in a way that you will tolerate and embrace. And we found several key criteria that we think holds true to any sort of um, micromobility infrastructure deployment in public right of way. Primarily, one, this has to look good. You know, we're seeing a new golden age of the urban public space where we have these marquee streetscapes. We can't drop a, a shipping container or a bike cage in the middle of Union Square in San Francisco, right? Or the middle of Market Street or on Broadway in New York. So how do we have good looking marquee infrastructure that really augments and complements the streetscape? Two, what is a financing mechanism that's going to allow us to pay for this infrastructure so that the government you know, isn't bankrupted and so that users aren't, aren't excluded, right? And three, who's gonna operate this infrastructure? We know that we can drop um, a large asset on the streetscape and it will look good you know, day one, day five, day 25, but what does it look like at day 365, right? What happens when someone graffitis all over it? What happens when it gets dirty? What happens when there's a storm or security incident? Who is there to actually operate and maintain this infrastructure? And how are you gonna go acquire the real estate to make this all happen? So Uni originally was about tackling those four problems. And we believe based on our experience at the Business Improvement District that there wasn't a formula um, for doing that and for scaling. And as we, as we did that, as we rolled out our, our three initial units in the New York area as a proof of concept, we realized that there was a much more fundamental problem. And that was that government was not optimized here in New York to move aggressively in embracing new infrastructure. We solved all those technical issues. We turned community boards from obstacles into our biggest backers. We rallied the city council we rallied property owners and we kind of took here city government by surprise because there are a lot of people who were like, good luck. You're never going to figure this out. And when we did, we found that there was not an appetite to aggressively move for expansion very quickly. And so now we have a more fundamental problem, which is who are we as urban communities? How do we move decisively to build the infrastructure of tomorrow? We are never going to solve climate change. We are never going to see transportation alternatives like bike share and scooter share and personal use of bikes and scooters become a primary competitive mode of transportation in cities unless we can build infrastructure very quickly. And so UNI's become, you know, it's become a, a, an operator, a for-profit business, yes, one that is a champion of building infrastructure, but also one that is very vested in advocacy, in being a champion for, hey, fundamentally, let's build this infrastructure. Let's hold hands, let's work with advocates, let's apply political pressure, let's make the case for why we need to shift paradigms from the car, from large private vehicles to small micromobility assets and have an ecosystem that allows that to exist. For those who are not familiar with Uni, I think you can see some pictures at unipod.com, but can you take us through what does an Unipod look like? What does it do? How do you get into it? How, what does it look like inside? How are you providing this secure parking? Absolutely. So when we started the journey, the technical challenges were, as I mentioned, how do we build something that looks great, that fundamentally coheres with the urban streetscape around it, and that's highly functional. So the Uni kiosk, Unipod, is uh, a prototype level product that attempts to address all those needs. So it's a secure structure where you can park a bike or scooter inside. 
There's power available for charging. There is an air pump and you gain access by using a key card or a phone. So for those of you in the audience who are familiar with a bike cage in Boston or San Francisco, this will be very familiar, but it's not a cage, it's a kiosk. And we're very intentional about that. So on the exterior, when you walk by, you'll see greenery, you'll see seating, you'll see lighting. You'll see something that looks much more like a large bus shelter or a large newsstand than a bike locker or a bike cage. And you very intentionally don't use any box, locker, cage. Those words are not in our vernacular because in order to make this work in a, in a city environment, you need something that's a little bit more premium than that. So that's important because we consider the 40,000 people who are walking by an uni kiosk in Broadway as our users too. You know, the 200 people that are using it during the day are users, but the 40,000 people who are walking by in the exterior are also our users as well. What is their experience like interacting with this piece of infrastructure? And what is it made out of on the outside? Uh, unis are made out of steel, aluminum, and uh, polycarbonate. So is it a so, hard-sided structure or is it soft like a tent? It's a hard-sided structure. The polycarbonate panels are like glass. They're pretty much like glass except much cheaper and much more durable. And then on the side below them, there is aluminum cladding. And then the doors are made of steel. The structure itself is modular. It comes in a moving truck. It is set up in a course of a day or two, and it can be uh, disassembled in six hours. That's very important because when we were speaking to property owners and, and governments, you know, they would say things like, we love this idea, we love this space for this project, but one day in the future, we wanna have a farmer's market here, we wanna do a capital project here. There's always one guy in the back who says, great idea, but what about that long away capital plan to put in new pavers over there. We can't do this now. And so we, 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 we created an experience for the property owner that was highly malleable. Unis um, are designed to be taken apart. They're also designed to be, moder be modified and iterated to respond to changing site conditions. So let's say that we, dis we discover the demands actually 2X what we initially planned for. We can expand the asset. We can add more to it. So think of it like a bundle of Legos. There's not one materiality. There's not one uh, component that we use. We can have uh, glass. We can have polycarbonate. We can have acrylic. We can have steel. We can have aluminum. They're all assembled together on site. It is a very sturdy structure, however, that is code compliant. We do have to be duly certified by structural engineers. Uh, we do have to be in New York. We're evaluated for snow, for car impact, for seismic, and for wind. So it is a building, it's quite robust, but it also is something that is very iterative and malleable. And we found that in creating this framework, when we looked at the existing structures, notably shipping containers, we found that there was, they were not really suited well to thriving uh, and meeting all those different functionality needs. How tall typically are the pods? How wide? And when you go in the door, what do you see? Is it multiple racks, a single rack? How is it structured inside? That's a great question. So here's my disclaimer. The pods are modular, so there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution for public space. And that is a mantra that is near and dear to us. We typically, when we approach property owners in cities, we say, tell us what you need and, and we'll custom design something for you out of this Lego kit rather than us telling you what a, a, a kiosk or a pod looks like. 
our product line, it not only includes pods, it includes curbside units, it includes larger assets, smaller assets. The pod is really a prototype, a proof of concept, a minimal viable product and Silicon Valley speaks. So that's my disclaimer. The pods that we have now are 13 and a half feet wide, 15 feet long and about 10 feet high. So it's a robust structure, it's sizable. And when you enter, you'll see racks on both sides that are vertical. You'll see charging ports on both sides, one at each end for plugging in a electric vehicle. And you'll see LED lighting strips that um, are on the ceiling and come down to the sides. So the kiosk is well illuminated at night. And you'll also notice when you walk in, it's fairly transparent. When you walk inside, you'll, you'll notice about 40% of the structure you can see uh, through. So you can see on the inside to the outside and the outside to the inside. And that's very important because when you actually speak to property owners and public space managers, the number one question you get is not, hey, does this work? Or, hey, will people use the bike parking here? It's, what do I do when something illicit happens inside? How do you prevent someone from being assaulted inside? You know, what do you do when there is a parade down Broadway or a parade down Market Street and we need to lock it up so someone can't put a bomb inside, right? It's those operational concerns that are typically the biggest challenge to putting something in the public right of way. And so having something be permeable where you can see outside in and inside out where light and air come in and out and flow through freely is really important for both the security element, but also for giving that user the confidence knowing to feel safe inside when they're using the asset. So you said the racks are vertical. Can you explain for folks who don't know what that looks like, whether it accommodates a bike, a scooter, how does it work? The vertical racks accommodate bikes. They do also accommodate scooters that are folding. We do have space that's set aside as well for scooters that can't fold and for cargo bikes. We, again, because the pods are modular, we can make them a little wider. So the vertical racks that you see now are pretty simple. They're not assisted lift. We're planning on going forward, having assisted lift racks for folks who have heavier bikes. But the intention is that right now, those vertical lift racks are primarily used for bikes and for folding scooters and you use your own lock to lock them up. There is a video camera inside that allows us to monitor what takes place inside the kiosk. We find that the average user interaction, so to speak, is about 60 seconds or under. So you come in, you, you lock your bike up. It takes about 20 seconds. You walk out. The pod is so wide because we need to have sufficient room for egress for exit and entry. So ideally, someone can exit and someone can also be entering both with bikes, right? And they can go respectively to a corner and, and lock up a bike. We also find that people, especially the working cyclists, go in the pod at night and actually charge and maintain and fix their bikes. So there has to be sufficient room inside for people to even take a seat, take their bike out, use the air pump, figure out what's wrong with their gears, et cetera. So it does sound like a, a rather large structure, but when we were doing the engineering for the prototype back in 2017, we found that something a little bit smaller, 10 feet wide, nine feet wide, just wouldn't be frankly safe in terms of exit and entry and even for emergencies. So who is it who has permission to enter? You said there's an app or you can have a card. Are they paying for that access? How do they have permission? And how do you know someone's just not gonna go in and steal bikes? Great question. So who has access? How much does it cost? And how do we quality assure the experience and, and quality assure who has access? So 
the answer to the first question is everyone has access. It's a, it's a public asset. And so anyone can sign up. They can go to unipod.com. They can sign up online. They can download the app. And right now it takes about a few, it takes a few hours to get approved. And I'll get into that in a second. But right now it's open to the general public. We're not exclusionary. There is no class of individual or class of user that is excluded. It's open to everybody. Secondly, how much does it cost? It is available for the very low cost of free to the general public. So uh, I'll say that again, it's free to use. And that's important for us because, you know, when you're thinking about public transit and and when you're thinking about other modes of, of, of getting around, cost is usually a barrier to entry. The reason why public transit is often cheap or in some cases even free is because we know that those of us who are lower down the economic spectrum, those of us who come from working class backgrounds, typically people of color in the United States, are, are less willing and more price sensitive to high costs, right? To public transit that is $10 and up. In our surveys, we found that most people would not be willing to pay more than $10 a month for secure bike parking. And that, when you kind of stratified out for those who are making under American median income, that went down to 35, 25% or so. We started out at $5 a month. We found that that was a barrier for lots of people, not just the cost, but also who, who has credit cards, who's banked, who's not banked. And it's not a significant revenue driver for us. So it just was not a useful mechanism to maintain. I think when you look at the promise of micromobility, what micromobility is poised to do in the American city, it's critical that advocates and entrepreneurs do not forget this. Cities are a majority non-white. Cities are a majority um, working class within city limits. So here in New York, we are 60% non-white. Our median income is $54,000. So who uses micromobility? There have been companies, I won't drop names, that have announced that uh, their user base is 17% Black and Latinx. And they're operating in markets that are 60 and 70% Black and Latinx. So we know that if we're going to create egalitarian, equitable infrastructure that's really going to serve the public in a meaningful way, then we have to find a way to move beyond user fees as uh, a sustainability mechanism. So when I say it's for everyone, I mean it's for everyone. We welcome everyone. And that's why it's free. And then in terms of thinking about how we can quality assure who our users are, because you're absolutely right, our biggest fear is people who have nefarious intentions coming into the kiosk um, and stealing a bike or, or vandalizing a bike. So when you sign up now, you have to verify your identity. You have to either provide us with a nice photo ID and take a picture next to it with your face and the photo ID, or you have to be social media verified where we will literally go through your social media account and make sure that you are a real person and then we can give you access to the space. We do, whenever anyone enters the space, we do record who that person is. So we can, we can mix and match. We can time your entry to any incident that takes place. To date, we've, we've had one theft. We've, had one, you know, we've been operating for two years. We've had about 20,000 use cases on an individual basis. We've had one theft, which is a miracle <laughs> in the context of, of cycling usage in a city like New York, one theft. And that was a case where someone did sign up illicitly, nefariously, and they did give us an ID but they didn't take a picture next to it, right? We, we just at that time required an ID. 
And then they went in for the explicit purpose of, of clipping a bike lock and taking a bike. And we were within 10 minutes able to figure out which user that was, ban that user, help the user that was victimized file a police report, and use our insurance to cover a portion of the cost of that bicycle. In this case, it was a $2,000 um, portion. The bicycle was $6,000, so we covered a third of the cost. And so none of that would have happened if your bike or scooter were stolen on the street, unprotected. So we tell folks that this is not Fort Knox. We can't promise or guarantee you that there is no scenario in which something bad does not happen to your bike. But the combination of mitigating features combined with a responsive insurance network that's going to kick in and provide you recompense if you lose your bike or scooter is enough to allow the user to travel with peace of mind, which is what we're all about. So it's free to use. How many people are simply using it for long-term storage of their bikes and maybe they only ride the bike once a month? How do you prevent them from being kind of clogged up with people who aren't really using the bikes on a daily basis? It's a great question. We have a three-day limit during peak times. You know, you're going to see some variability in, in usage that shifts with season. So in the winter, we typically see longer lag time and latency. In the summer, we see shorter latency. And that's just because people are using their bikes less in the winter, right? And you have um, people who live in nearby buildings who are, who are typically commuters, but they may park their bike. And, oh, there may be a blizzard. Oh, maybe 30 degrees in New York this week. So their bike stays in for a week, right? And and typically we won't enforce a three-day limit if um, there's excess space available. In the summer, when there tends to be not excess space available, that's when we we do have a conversation with users who are in breach of that policy. Now we are an MVP level product. Going forward, we are going to have self-locking bike racks, and it will be free for the first 48 hours or so, and then we're going to charge people. Uh, by the hour. So just like with bike share, you're going to get your first tranche of time free. And then there's going to be a fee that is a, a disincentive to your remaining for a long period of time. That fee we think will be dynamic. So it will be designed to be rationalized across the network. So for example, in San Francisco, you might have a higher hourly rate after 48 hours per minute along Market Street than you would have in Oakland right? If the market street pod is busier. So it's designed to really be an inducement to keeping folks moving their assets around the network and not using it as long-term storage. But again, we find that the people who really need long-term storage are more are often very content to haul their bikes upstairs or take them inside their apartments. It's usually people who um, intend to use their bike frequently, but for whatever reason, did not were not able to. That often are in breach of, of that policy. So, who is paying for the installation and maintenance of the pods? Okay, so this is why we have no competitors. And and when we talk to people in industry, they're like, "Y'all crazy? We pay for it all. We design, we customize, we install, we procure the property." We operate, and if necessary, we disassemble. We are completely horizontally integrated. And so the question then is, well, okay, why are y'all not bankrupt? So the way that we make money, the way that we pitch this experience to investors is twofold. Uh, on the asset side, we propose to operate just like bus shelters. Use advertising and media and sponsorship to pay for the upkeep and maintenance of the asset on the street. 
That's how bike share works in New York. It's how entry tape infrastructure works in top 10 markets across the country, from LA to New York to San Francisco. It's how public transit is able to get billions of dollars in in capital each year. So it's a very viable means to actually finance the, the construction, installation, operation of streetscape infrastructure. So for perspective, here in New York, let's say I, I pay $60,000 for an asset, right? And that's pretty typical. We're talking about going through the permitting process. We're talking about manufacturing, installing $60,000. For bull location, a, an advertisement can net between fifty dollars and $150,000 per month, right? As a net, right? So you're talking about a payback period that's relatively short if you're able to tap that kind of a revenue mechanism. Now, the challenge, as anyone who is in industry will tell you, is that in most cities, advertising is extremely regulated. You can't simply erect a billboard in the middle of San Francisco. It's illegal. Our value proposition to cities who desperately need this kind of infrastructure is, let us build it, let us prove that it works and give us the right to have digital advertising on the exterior. Screens that are static, but that are attractive and that will have transit arrival times, PSAs, and some sponsored content. And that is more than enough revenue to pay for the cost of the infrastructure. Secondarily, what we're also proposing to do is to turn these kiosks into resource centers. So it's not just about parking your asset, your your bike or your scooter. It's about getting on your app. And let's say you have a flat tire Let's say that you want a, a tune-up. Most people's bikes spend 95% of their life cycle sitting, doing nothing. So if you're in this pod, get on your app and have your local bike shop come to the pod and repair uh, the tires, give it a tune-up. If you're looking to rent a bike, buy a bike, rent a scooter, buy a scooter, do it through the app, right? We believe that one of the most underrealized, underappreciated, undervalued marketplaces in the United States today is the personally owned micromobility market. All of the attention has gone to mobility as a service, but it's only 5% of all use cases. Here in New York, we have 510,000 bike trips per day. Only 5% of those are really with city bike. So everyone else is using their own personal private vehicle. That's where the real growth is. And we see an amazing opportunity there. We see an opportunity to introduce a utility that everyone needs and to introduce an experience that people have to use by default. And what can we offer in terms of experiences and conveniences and amenities? What can we offer that demographic of people that produces revenue and value? And that's where we see in the long term, the real quote unquote unicorn opportunity to be is capitalizing on that rapidly growing market, which is going to be hundreds of millions of people globally, and using that to fuel business in partnership and in concert with media and sponsorship revenue. So where do you have these Unipods located today? Are they on public land or private land? I understand sort of paying permit fees to locate and getting permission to run your advertisements, but who's giving you the land? And are you doing private partnerships with apartment buildings or hotels or other services? So we have, we are now just exiting the proof of concept phase. We've launched four units in New York City, two of which are still active, two primarily before were pilots. It's very hard to convince property owners, especially marquee property owners, to let you deploy an asset as a startup 
that is going to be long-term and going to be quite large, that's unproven and untested. So part of what we had to do is simply prove to people that we could build something that looks good and operate it competently. And, and people, you know, were very skeptical. They were very polite, but very skeptical. And so we've done just that. We've done that in, 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 in neighborhoods and communities that are very different from each other. So downtown Manhattan, downtown Brooklyn, Journal Square and the Brooklyn Navy Yard, each of those communities has a very different demographic of people around it and a very different streetscape environment. So in terms of who the partners are, all of the above, we've worked with private developers in downtown Brooklyn. We work with Madison International Realty, which runs the Atlantic Center. In downtown Manhattan, we work with a business improvement district that operated public plaza under the Department of Transportation. In Journal Square, we work with the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey, and we have an asset right next to that serves their path station. And the Navy Yard, we worked with the Brooklyn Navy Yard Development Corporation, which is a quasi-public property owner. So our experience as a leadership team is not just in uh, B2C marketing or in product development. The hard work in this space is actually fundamentally, how do you work with stakeholders and communities to build innovative infrastructure? And anyone who knows the space well enough will say, that's the real challenge. It's building uh, relationships with communities, with public entities, with, with quasi-public entities, with private entities to get these projects over the finish line. That's where our core competency is. We are in the process now of working with, and I can't drop names again, working with several public and private entities on expansion in New York and New Jersey particularly. So we're very excited about that. We expect to have announcements very soon in the next 60 days for sure. But now that we've seen a verdict rendered uh, on this kind of infrastructure, you know, in, in what, is, what are really challenging urban environments to operate in, it just takes one guy with a Sharpie or a marker uh, or one guy to kick in, you know, the door to, to ruin it for everybody. Now that you've seen a really consistent, strong track record, we're seeing interest from all over the country. Our challenge then shifts from proving baseline viability to now establishing a need for government and even the private sector to move quickly and aggressively and decisively so that we can scale very rapidly. And that's what we're trying to do now. We don't really encounter reticence on the idea or on the execution where we simply have to hold people's hands and say, okay, let's go through all the red tape. Let's get these permits done. Let's get RFPs issued so we can move, you know, take a, what can normally be a five-year project and make it into a one-year project. It seems like there are a couple of different use cases that would make sense. One would be more in an outer neighborhood where somebody might be using micromobility as a first mile, last mile to get to transit, not necessarily want to be taking their bike with them. I think also could be in a denser neighborhood where somebody doesn't want to lug their bike up to their apartment building and wants storage where they live. And then there would be, I think, a very different use case for a shared micromobility fleet, which would be, as you point out, to limit the clutter and to provide 
places to park, charge, repair vehicles kind of in a downtown area. Can you give me your pitch for those use cases and who you would want to work with on those projects? Well, there are more use cases than that. And, and taking a step back for a second, good infrastructure is built to serve a variety of use cases. And we have to get out of our head as a space that, oh, we serve this use case or we serve that use case. And when you think about public transit, when we think about the car culture, we never think about use cases. Like in public transit, people are commuting, they're going to their friend's house, they're taking short trips, right? There's no, oh, this is the use case. So with our infrastructure, there are actually a variety of use cases. I'll give you a couple of examples. We see people who are storing their bikes uh, or scooters while they sleep at night. And so that use case is particularly aligned for people for, who are living somewhere, they don't want to haul it up or they can't haul it up because they don't have the space and they're parking inside, right? Latency tends to be a little bit longer. We tend to see, you know, a couple of days and, and that's primarily in areas that are more residential. We see end of trip use cases where people um, go to work and they, they don't have bike parking that's convenient inside. And so this is an end of trip, you know, use case where they, they park and these tends to be just a day, right? People tend to park their bike inside, get, you know, go to work, come out, get their bike, go home, right? Now, what people often forget is in cities like New York, we get 50,000 working cyclists who power the restaurant industry. We didn't realize this at first, but when we launched our first kiosk in downtown Manhattan, we saw people coming in at 1230 at night. And we were like, what are they doing at 1230 at night? What's, what's, what's happening? And so we tracked down those users and we were like, you know, what y'all doing in there at 1230 at night? Like, that's kind of weird. We even have that use case in our, um, in our encyclopedia. And they were like, no, you know, we deliver food in the neighborhood. We work for DoorDash, we work for Postmates, we work for Uber Eats. And we work from 3 p.m. to 11.45 or 12.30 a.m. And we park our bikes um, in the kiosk overnight because we don't want to drag them to Union City or to Bushwick or to the South Bronx, right? And we come back and we take them out again during the day. About 20% of our use cases actually are working cyclists and they account for our most consistent usage pattern. And so those are just three of the use cases that we see. Now we have people at the mall who are just coming to park their bike because they want to go shopping. And they tend to come once a month. They're not like the folks who are commuting, right? So good infrastructure is designed to be adaptable and malleable so that it serves a variety of use cases. And, and it's future-proof insofar as that we know that there might be other use cases in the future. As far as shared mobility is concerned, we're looking primarily at how can we build infrastructure on the exterior of the kiosk that's accessible and adaptable. You know, the challenge between personal mobility and shared mobility is that one is really emphatic or should be really emphatic of security, right? Or the other should be really emphatic of open access. And so it's counterproductive to take shared scooters, shared mobility assets, and put them behind you know, a locked gate right? Because that's not conducive to the sharing. So ironically, the need that we find that's greater for shared mobility operators are operations hubs, where, you know, where can we store assets that need to be replaced or need to be fixed? Where can we put our assets when there's a hurricane coming? You know, Lime, last year, there was a huge hurricane, you know, about to hit Miami, and they had to take all their scooters off the street. And if you have a warehouse on the city periphery, well, that's a long job. So, how can these essentially mini warehouses serve as consolidation points 
for assets like scooters. That's a refining from an operational standpoint, the greatest value to be. On the exterior, then integrating docks and charging stations for shared vehicles so that they're easy for the public to access. We hope that cities will start to think about this infrastructure jointly, where we think about how can we have docks on the outside, secure bike and scooter parking for personal usage on the inside, consolidation points for shared operations on the inside as well. And let's think about building hubs out that service all those needs. So we have a micromobility infrastructure foundation that allows us to get to 25, 35, 45% mode share in cities like New York and San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, I've been a proponent for the industry trying to work together to offer shared micromobility services in cities. And when you look at the operational costs and some of the regulatory requirements, it's been very challenging for shared micromobility providers. And it seems like if you could collaborate and have these hubs throughout the city, whether you're swapping batteries or doing some repairs or for places where there's a curfew and scooters have to be picked up off the street and secured overnight, having kind of a shared infrastructure rather than each company trying to do that on their own, particularly where some of the permits may only last a year, they may not know if they're going to be able to operate in a city long term. It seems like having a, a place like what you're offering that could be shared by multiple providers would be super helpful. It also seems like, especially in a place like New York, where you have a lot of weather, that it could be helpful. I, I understand the idea of not wanting to take shared devices and put them behind a further locked wall. But I also wonder if there could be a version where the doors are not locked during the day, but it's for people to come and go grabbing a, a scooter or a shared bike that's protected from the weather as well. I, I want to say something that may be controversial. And I want to talk about what cities need to do. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the industry as a whole. There are very few examples of profitable transit-oriented businesses that make money only on user fees, right? Like the airline industry is a semi example, but they prove the rule because they're always teetering in bankruptcy. So, you know, when you look at transit orientated companies, they typically have a, a, a strong secondary or tertiary source of revenue that helps make the venture workable. City Bike in New York is a great example where the, the scheme would not be possible if it were not for the sponsorship and advertising revenue that was bought in from city and from other, from other folks and was duly authorized by the city of New York. So cities are thinking, and they're totally wrong, they're going to stuff all these permits and infrastructure costs on the operators and the operators who are struggling to show profitability to an increasingly skeptical Silicon Valley are going to just take that and, and then cities say, oh, how come it didn't work out? You know, what instead what needs to happen is that cities at this critical juncture need to make a decision. Is micromobility a serious form of transportation on par with automobiles and public transit? And if it is, we need to allow infrastructure to tap in to that advertising and sponsorship revenue stream that we also allow for public transit. And what does, it, what does that look like? It looks like an RFP, a streetscape furniture RFP. LA is going through this process right now, actually, where we integrate micromobility infrastructure into a street furniture franchise. And we say, hey, here's our vision for micromobility infrastructure for bikes, 
for shared mobility as a service vehicles and for other uses. And in some cities that may look like a bus shelter, newsstand, bike parking hub, and scooter charging hub. Another city may look like a bike parking hub like Uni, which has, you know, a charging station for scooters on the outside. And as you said, hey, you know, maybe it has a consolidation point inside. But cities need to be proactive and be at the table and to use the tools of governance to shape this vision and then figure out, hey, you know, if you're San Francisco, New York, let's not build five or 10, let's build a thousand and let's disperse them throughout the city. And I know those numbers sound really ambitious, but London has 150,000 bike parking spaces, 7,500 of which are secure. They have these bike hangers all over the city where they've got these hatches, you lift them up and you have a key, right? And they're not particularly advanced. You have to use a key to get in, but it's infrastructure. There are 1,200 of them scattered around the city that people can actually use to park vehicles in. New York, by comparison, has 56,000 bike parking spaces, 20 of which are secure. And those 20 are at the Uni in downtown Brooklyn. So cities need to get real and use the resources they have available to them to assist the private sector to build what is essentially a form of public transportation. Make no mistake about it. The reason why cities are interested in this is because they want the public to use bikes and scooters to get around. That's what they're saying. But they have not yet committed themselves to opening up the piggy bank, so to speak, to actually finance these schemes. And they know that all these companies are operating within the cities on what is essentially borrowed time, that these schemes are not going to be both reconcilable with the public interest and sustainable. By reconcilable, I mean, cities will say, okay, I want you to operate in neighborhoods and sections of the city that we know are going to see high usage. I want you to have 25,000 vehicles in your fleet. I want you to go have a team of, of 40 people that's going to go around and clear vehicles off the street. I want you to pay $500 in, in permitting fees per vehicle. And by the way, make a profit. And it's, it's not going to work. So we just need to see a different paradigm uh, in how we're going to operate micromobility and services, both personal and shared, and a common infrastructure platform for the 21st century urban landscape. Well, amen to that. I've been making the same pitch myself that if cities want micromobility, they should reduce the fees. And then I don't think it has to be a public-private partnership that means cities are subsidizing or paying money at a time when they don't have funds, but they can provide the infrastructure. They can provide the land for the parking. They can make the bike lanes. They can add infrastructure which really helps the industry as well as, in my view, reducing some of the requirements that are way more than are ever imposed on cars. Cities have decided that if people are going to ride the bus, they need places to sit and to stand that are active. And so cities said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to create bus shelter programs. But who's going to pay for them? Okay, well, we're going to bid these out. And in cases like you know in New York and San Francisco and LA, we're going to find advertising companies that are going to put ads in them and they're going to pay for the infrastructure. And that's how we have all these bus shelters. So again, it comes down to, are you serious or not about the role that micromobility will play in your transportation network? And if you are, the model already exists. It's not rocket science. You recently received an investment from Voy, the Swedish scooter company. Are you thinking about expanding into any cities in Europe? Where else are you looking to go? And what are your plans for the next year or so? Right now, we're focused on the next 15 locations. You know, we're exiting this proof of concept phase. We're very focused in New York. We have some exciting conversations in other parts of the country, in San Francisco and Washington, D.C., and some other markets. But New 
York is our home and we want to succeed here as well. So we're taking it one step at a time. We're looking at where those next 15 locations are going to be. And we believe that if we can show that, hey, you know, three is nice, but 15, 25, now you have a network. We can not only show cities that networks can thrive and work regionally, we can show investors that this can be a juggernaut of a business. I believe fundamentally, uh, and this is where doors get slammed in my face, but I believe fundamentally that value is created when you actually solve real problems. And so when we're talking about how do we create a future where micromobility can thrive, we actually have to have a credible, viable, vetted solution for that. And so for me, this is a code to crack. And if we can actually develop with the city a framework for an infrastructure network, and we can show that users will use this infrastructure, download an app, join an ecosystem, and use that ecosystem for insurance, for fixing bikes and scooters, for buying new bikes, for selling their old bikes. Now you have really done something special. You have shown for the first time that all these stakeholders, users, cities, public agencies, private developers, can all be aligned and you can corner the market and create a platform for something special. We are very focused on proving that argument to be true. And we think that once we do that, the sky's the limit. So, you know, I'm just a guy from Brooklyn who wants to solve this problem, but I'm an old fashioned guy. I believe that solving the problem can be very lucrative for investors. And I think, unfortunately, we have a lot of investors who are in Silicon Valley and beyond say that I don't wanna work with government. I don't want to work with cities. I would be a city company that can make some money quick, but that's not really where the long-term value is. That's not really what is impactful. What's going to create long-term value is solving the hard problems. This is a hard problem. And so we're very focused now on, on, on here in New York and maybe some other spaces showing that we can create an impactful solution that actually solves that hard problem once and for all. Terrific. Well, thanks so much for joining the podcast to tell us what Uni's doing and best of luck to you as you are looking to expand. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so appreciative of your time, Michelle. Thanks again to Shabazz for joining us. You can find the show notes for the podcast on our Substack publication, smartercars.substack.com. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.